This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, Andy Rubin, Vice President of Strategy and Sustainability at Walmart, and Jib Ellison, Walmart's sustainability consultant, share their experience of transforming the largest company in the world into an environmentally sustainable business. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby, and I'm Eric Ni. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today, we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. And so I worked on the strategy and sustainability team this summer, and we have here, actually, I wore this t-shirt because this, the second week of my internship, there was a milestone meeting at, at Walmart, and I was sitting, and this is the, the first time, and the last time I saw these two actually together, and it's a big auditorium in Walmart. It's, I don't know, it's probably 650 or 700 people. And it was full of employees, NGOs, academics, thought leaders. And it was all about why Walmart's engaging in sustainability and how it relates to climate change. And I'm sitting in this auditorium, and we're learning all about it. And then Al Gore is in Walmart, in Bentonville, giving a speech. And there's a standing ovation. And it was at that point I realized that this is really serious. And these two people in particular are helping really to shift the momentum in the corporate world. So I think we're really lucky. Andy has an engineering background, also an MBA. He's done the consulting, came into Walmart and worked in strategy, and then got promoted to the VP of strategy for the US. And I think it was only two years ago that he really started to get it. He was put into this new position as head of strategy and sustainability and started to learn about sustainability. And I'm hoping he's going to talk a little bit about this idea of the lens of sustainability and how he's personally and professionally sees the world differently as a result of all these learnings. Jib is the founder and president of Blue Sky Sustainability Consulting. He founded Blue Sky two years ago, almost three years ago, actually, yes. Pretty much exclusively around this work with Walmart. Uh, Jib's had an amazing journey. I think he's going to talk about it in his remarks, but he has, I put words in your mouth, but a passion for bringing small groups of very dedicated people together to change the world. And he's done this in aspects of bringing people from different cultures focused around such big issues as the Cold War in a raft down a class five river in the middle of South America to working with the largest company in the world. He's a pretty inspirational person and I'm really excited to be working for him when I when I graduate. So we wanted to turn this into a discussion. Um, first, I think Jib's going to sort of walk through what is, a, what is a race to the top in his views, working with market leaders and seeing how they can make business sense out of helping make the environment a, a better place for our future children. And 
obviously showcasing a very, very strong market leader, Walmart, in this area, and Andy Rubin talking about what Walmart's goals are, what they've done, and how it's transformed them as a company, as well as, as, well as environmentally. And then the biggest and most important part is your question and answers, which will, um, I guess we have to pass around this microphone, and hopefully we'll have about half an hour to do that. So without further ado. Hello, everybody. Thank you all for coming. Um, again, my name is Jib. My background is uh, kind of eclectic. I was a river guide, an expedition leader when I was in my 20s. I worked all over the world, met my wife in Africa, started a nonprofit organization, as Diana indicated, where we took Russians and Americans, college students, high school students, and put them in the boat together on a raging river as a perfect metaphor for what needed to happen at that time in our history. And I was a philosophy major in college, and my uh, professor's forte was nuclear deterrence theory. And I don't know if any of you have ever taken a nuclear deterrence theory class, but it's, it's a pretty scary, uh, scary thing. And so that, that was really my awakening to this, this notion, learning about nuclear deterrence, and then going to Russia and doing what I knew how to do, which was organize big expeditions, and use it to participate in a big transformation, in this case, of the Soviet Union, from the Soviet Union to uh, Russia, I learned this kind of this somewhat overused notion that a small group of people, you know, committed can actually make a huge, huge difference. And, and the thing that's required, however, is a little bit of kind of chutzpah and timing and dedication and competence. So I tell this story in relationship to this just because uh, what, after I, what I did after that is I became a management consultant, founded a small strategy consulting boutique in San Francisco called the Trium Group, and then about three and a half years ago had an epiphany that the greatest untapped source of competitive advantage in our time, in this country in particular, is found in, uh, I would call it, uh, radical adoption of sustainability principles into business systems. And uh, while there were a lot of people kind of doing the CSR thing, and it was all being viewed kind of through a philanthropic lens and through a do-good lens, which is fine, but for particular certain kinds of sector leaders, my research uh, showed me, there was a massive business opportunity that people just weren't seeing. And the reason they weren't seeing it wasn't because it wasn't a good idea. It was really just because they couldn't see it. Because when you go to a, a CEO and you say, environment, it goes in the ear, neurally fires around, it ends up lodged in some part of the brain for most of them uh, that has nothing to do with the core business. If it's anything, it's kind of a thing to be avoided, a thing, you know, to, that we got to manage risk. Give it to my compliance person, my EH&S person, and let me go run the business. Let me do what I do. That's in kind of the best case. The switch and the hardest part, and I think the, the most unique part, as Andy will talk about, is actually getting the people running the big lines of business who have the P&L responsibility to think differently. Because once you think differently, you then act differently. And it is like a lens. And uh, those of you 
I'm sure Diana and uh, Sam are, are walking examples of this lens. I, I, know, I know from firsthand experience they can't take it off. <laughs> so I, I, I took a sabbatical and I said, I'm going to give this a year and I'm going to see if there's a business in it because everybody I talked to said, this is crazy. It won't make any, doesn't make any sense. If, some, if this was such a good idea, McKinsey would already be doing it, yada, yada, yada. And it's one of those, you know, you better be careful what you ask for. My first big client was the CEO of Walmart. And uh, he started out with a very defensive orientation, like we're getting hammered in the press. I know we don't know anything about our environmental impacts. Can you do some research and tell me where we might be exposed? And I said, well, we could do a lot of research, but if you really want to cut to the chase, given your size, if you include your supply chains, you're exposed in everything that matters to everybody. So I just saved you $10 million, five years. Uh, and then I said, but then I said, but if you really want to know something cool about this whole environment and social side of this equation, there's this massive business opportunity, the best opportunity of our time. And you are perfectly well situated to, to do it. So he listened and kind of nodded and that began a journey which was now about two and a half years ago. So I've had the privilege of working very closely with Andy from the outset. He was one of the first people I interviewed at the beginning of this whole project. Oh, and about the race to the top, let me just explain what that, what that means. This was coined actually by an NGO, a guy named Michael Marks. And, and the idea simply is this, that in today's world of globalization and, and kind of the way business calculus works, that we are committed to externalizing a lot of costs, many of you probably understand this, to the environment, to social systems, to countries, and in a sense, it's totally unsustainable. So the, the, the simple idea, not easy to implement, is what if instead you, you use the power of the marketplace to, in a sense, uh, not only make money, but to do it by internalizing a lot of the externalized costs. And so really, uh, if I have to say that Walmart is a major catalyst in, in beginning that race, and I'll let Andy talk a little bit about that, so. <laughs> Thank you, that was, yeah. that was good. <laughs> so, so let me give you a kind of sense of what brought me to be standing right here as well. So I, I joined Walmart five years ago to do strategy. And what I mean by strategy, because I'm still doing strategy now, but strategy is I'd always thought about it. So if you, to give you a sense of how I was thinking about strategy, if you go back to Walmart 1942, when we opened up a discount store in rural America. Right at the time, actually Sam Walton had to leave Ben Franklin because he had this crazy idea that you could sell these type of products in Alliance, Nebraska, and everyone said, you're a fool, that'll never work, you gotta be in a big city, there's no market in Alliance, Nebraska. And he said, no, I think there is. So strategy was about looking for those opportunities where the world wasn't seeing it because if the world was actually seeing it, that opportunity wouldn't be as big as it was. And so if you kind of go from 1942, fast forward to let's say 1992, a second example, and this is all, I would all put this in the traditional opportunity bucket. Uh, 1992, Retail Link. So at some point we started expanding Walmart from just kind of the Midwest. I think the market we were in at that point was expanding into Florida. 
and we couldn't figure out how to get the right products in the right stores for specific markets that were so far from Arkansas. So we said, boy, the only way we're going to figure this out is if we start sharing all the sales data with our suppliers, because P&G will just spend more time trying to understand where you sell more Tide and where you put what items than we can. At that point, though, retailers didn't share data with suppliers. You don't do that. That's your proprietary data. So again, no one's doing it. It sounds a little crazy. Self-distribution, same thing. So then keep fast-forwarding to where Jib comes on the scene. And the, the, the quote that I remember the first time that, uh, that I'd heard about Jib was, was I'd gotten a call in June of 2004 from Lee where he asked me to, um, to put together three, it was actually four things. He asked me for, the, uh, for what the, we have department numbers in the company. He asked me for a legend of what the department numbers equaled. So, you know, department number 10 is automotive, that type of thing. He asked me for, uh, for information on these two experimental stores that we were doing. Remember, anyway, this, this set of things, and I had no idea who Jib was, had no idea that this was about the environment. Start getting involved, um, get to meet Jib. We, we had our first conversation on the phone. It's 3% of my time, 5%, 10%. All of a sudden, that same opportunity I'd always be thinking about in strategy, oh my gosh, I mean, it was the same epiphany, and it, it, it was the one Jib described, but now this is me and Walmart saying, there's a thousandfold of anything I've ever seen before. It's like the whole time we've been focused on EDLC, everyday low cost, right, figuring out a more efficient way to do it, whether that's sharing data with suppliers, better logistics, better relationship with the supplier, and then all of a sudden, you realize that you're only looking at 10% of what's out there. And that, you know, with this new lens, these new set of glasses, you start to see more and more. And so it was the same thing, just broadened. And as, I mean, I, I think that the size that we're at right now is because we've done a pretty good job so far of EDLP, everyday low price. But when you start to realize how much is being left on the table based on these externalities, this race to the top concept, all of a sudden, the opportunities are just, you realize you're just starting to scratch the surface. And at the same time, there's so much value created, just like there was in opening a discount store in rural America by serving people's needs. There's all this value to be created, and therefore an incredible business opportunity because you had that value. You're delivering things for, for people. You're adding value. You can capture some of that value for the, for the shareholders. So a thousandfold of any business opportunity I'd seen. And maybe I'll just give uh, I'll just give one example of that. What are, what are maybe the goals yeah. and some oh, of the good, examples? Good point. So so we kind of <clears throat> maybe I'll keep going on time. So we, we get down the road, and at some point we um, we actually did put three goals out there. It had been about a year and a half. Three major goals as a company that seemed to um, seemed to really align a lot of the the thought that was going on. The first one around energy, aspirational goals, 100% renewable energy more tactical or near-term goals, um, the fleet that we have, 25% better in three years, doubling in 10 years, buildings, et cetera. Second goal around waste, basically getting, you know, getting to zero waste. So anything that leaves the store comes back in some sense. And so that, you know, again, they're shorter-term goals, getting rid of 25% of the solid waste uh, within three years. A new one that we've just started talking about is a 5% reduction in packaging of of every item in every store in every market that we have. So touching every item globally in the next five years in packaging. A third aspirational goal, and this is by far the biggest opportunity, is around uh, the products that we sell. So understanding and, and working toward the products coming from, um, products being produced and sold and used in a way that sustains natural resources. 
And that deals, obviously, with the industrial model. It deals with supply chain. It deals with customer. So there, you know, the, again, it's, um, it's back to this race to the top concept. And we believe we're on the beginning of a very long and exciting journey. And great time for questions, thoughts, discussion. Thanks for coming. It's really been good to hear what you guys have to say. Um, my question is, you know, in the, in the news and the media, we read about, you know, in, improved efficiencies, CFL campaigns. And I read elsewhere also that the productivity, just like the quality of, of work and productivity of the employees, also tends to radically change as you go more sustainable. I was wondering if either of you in your experience have like, a story about that or your thoughts on that. Well, uh, people, in addition to trying to make you know, a living and do the things that they do, definitely want to have meaning in their lives. And I think we live in a time for a lot of people that there's, there's, there's a challenge of that inside their work, you know. And so sustainability, and I think, I don't have the research, but if you look at like the little companies that are really have built themselves around this, there's, a, there's an energy and a passion that is palpable, that isn't in, in other sorts of companies. And if you go in uh, Walmart, you know, it's, it's somewhat cult-like in general anyway, as a culture. But the people who have this thing, they're really, you know, they're kind of like <laughs> levitating, walking around in the hallway. So, so uh, I, I would say almost for sure that it, it increases people's uh, productivity. I don't know if you have... So, yeah, so, so, so you're working at a company where you, where you buy and sell apparel and you deliver goods to people they couldn't normally afford one company, company A. Company B, you're doing that same thing, plus you're also just figured out a way to start to create this race to the top where you just figured out a way that 10 jumbo jets, the equivalent of 10 jumbo jets of pesticides, don't go into the earth. You know, there's just a certain amount of, and, and as you look in the industry, the people who Jib talked about are on this journey, headhunters are having a harder time hiring those people away. Because yes, you can find another job, it might pay a few dollars more, but there's something so much more meaningful as Janelle and I got in our rental car, and I think it actually, if anyone wants to see it, it's a collector's item. You've got to individually lock the doors, which we haven't <laughs> seen in so long. And, you know, I mean, part of what, um, part of what motivates you is it's beyond there. It's kind of the excitement of the job and the, and the potential. So you talked about this, this concept of the race to the top as being sort of massive, one of the, the biggest business opportunities of our time. Uh, it's, you said it's a, a thousandfold what you've seen before. And, and um, you described how internalizing the, the externalized costs of to the environment or to other countries can be can be profitable. How how is that? Can you give an example? Can you explain to me how you would explain to this to the Walmart's board of directors or the shareholders? Let's uh, let's take a few examples. So I mean, there are the efficiency examples, and there are a lot of those. We believe we are just starting to see, and we will start to see, more customer-facing benefits as well, where 3M comes out with a better Post-it that's just simply an all-around better Post-it. An all-around better Post-it means maybe it costs less, maybe it sticks better, maybe it's a water-soluble um, adhesive on the back, maybe the paper comes from a different source, maybe there's something else you can do after. Again, it creates that race of how you make better products. It expands the viewpoint. That race is already going on. It just doesn't include this full expanding of the lens yet. I'm really glad that you found the light, but I'm wondering how you 
infiltrate across your company to thousands and thousands of people, both at the management level and at your average everyday worker level. I think it's probably one thing to convince people that the efficiency argument makes sense. That seems like a no-brainer. But in order to switch a lens so that you see everything like Diane and Sam and I do on a daily basis, that seems like a harder sell, and I've been having a lot of trouble. So if you have any thoughts on how to do that massive infiltration, please let me know. Mindset, I mean, a general comment, I mean, mindset is one of the most challenging things to shift because I don't think you can force someone to change a mindset. But what you can do has been really effective at a top level are these, they're basically field trips. And so as you take people out of the conference room they're used to sitting in, and, and a few examples, I mean, we, Jim and I were both with Lee Scott as we went to the top of Mount Washington and sat with maple sugar farmers. That's not a data point. They're people talking about the physical trees you're standing in that are moving up a mountain. And then you can go look at the data points on top of Mount Washington. But the experience is much richer. Um, those type of field trips, and Jib has been, uh, I think, incredibly instrumental at, at starting those and kind of designing and keeping those going. So I'm going to comment about kind of that. And then maybe we can talk about the store level as well. I think it's a comment. It depends on what kind of person it is. So some people need data. And the truth is, I mean, you can go out. If, if you want to just conduct an experiment over the holidays, just, just go, you know, read the Millennium Report, read. If you Google sustainability and data and facts, and you, you know, you're all pretty bright analytic people here, you will draw, I promise, you will draw the conclusion that the path we are on is unsustainable. So some people just need that. They just need to see those graphs, you know, with everything kind of going like this and fish stocks and carbon going into the air and, uh, you know, arable land disappearing, population rising, GDP rising, China and India wanting more stuff. And you just go, it, it just doesn't pan out. So some people just need that. Some people need an experience. Some people uh, really just need a target. You know, they need a, a project. And then once they get involved in a project, they learn and they get involved. So the, the, to, to Andy's point, there's, there's no silver bullet, really. It really is, depends on the, on, on the people. But I think our approach has been very much focused on the people who run the lines of business. Because the tendency in all of this is you, you, you give them a pitch, and they go, okay, okay. And then they, they, they offload it down in the organization, again, to a compliance organization or somewhere else. And then they get back to business, <laughs> right? And so we've been relentless about, whoa, no, 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 no. You know, you're not going to push that off down there. This is about you. This is about your P&L. This is about your line of business. You need to get your head wrapped around this. And, and when that happens, when it is the people who have the ultimate responsibility for lots, thousands of people below them and, and lots of commerce, uh, it's amazing how it gets infiltrated down into those organizations, how quickly. And the entire Walmart team that is dedicated 100% to this exists of five people, including myself and Janelle, and all administrative support. 
So in that, I mean, given what has happened in the past two years, I don't have to tell you that most of it, if not almost all of it, is happening inside the business. So the people who buy trucks, it's their mindset that allows them in their life to see things differently. <laughs> A great example is the person who buys laptop computers was sitting at the Toshiba factory, and there was one line running computers for Europe that had less heavy metals, cadmium, lead, mercury, and one line running computers for the US. And the obvious question with this you know, somewhat new lens that um, Alex Cook, the buyer, had was, can we get those computers in our stores in the US? Right? I mean, it's, and, and will it cost the customer more? <laughs> and they said, no. In fact, you combine the lines, we get enough efficiency. It's the same or maybe even more efficient. And so that lens, Janelle and I weren't in the Toshiba factory. So unless that mindset exists in the business, you miss most of the opportunity. You want the people to know about it. And if, um, so, so that is, that's got to live in the business. And I think so far we've seen pretty good pickup that when people get this lens, they see the opportunities. At the store level, though, you know, we, um, I think people make a misconception. This is something that only people um, in a certain place in their lives are going to want to look at or care about. And we have not seen that to be the case whatsoever. Now, we've got to get um, a lot smarter at, and learn a lot about um, what matters. It's got to start with where people are. So if we show up in a, in a store in, again, in Nebraska and start talking about greenhouse gas, I mean, maybe that works, but, but maybe it doesn't. And so it's important as we get into stores, and we've been doing a lot of work there, is to start with what matters to people in stores and what people want to actually have a better life. Might start with health, might start with stopping smoking, might start with losing weight, but ultimately is very connected to everything we're talking about. And we've seen incredible traction at store level as well. About 20,000 people right now have been engaged thus far. Thank you for coming today. So my background's in supply chain management, and I asked this question because I want to have a better awareness. So um, my question is, is that you talked a little bit about the changes you'd like to implement, reducing packaging and so forth. And my understanding of Walmart is that it's not just Walmart. It's a whole supply chain behind it that's making it work. And I would imagine that these types of changes you're making in greening the bottom line has a tremendous financial impact on your suppliers. And I would imagine that in the past, um, considering the way that you've done your sourcing, they may or may not have had the opportunity to invest in innovation or have um, uh, a focus on that. So how are you supporting your suppliers? And to the extent that you have to change suppliers, is that impacting your bottom line in terms of the cost of bringing up a new supplier, educating them, getting them in EDI or whatever else? So I'm just interested in that how the sourcing practices changed. I really have to ask, when you say Im implications to suppliers, implications meaning cost them more or cost them less? Your assumption that it would cost more. I think we'll find out on a case-by-case -case basis, but for the most part, that's not been the case. And, and an example is in uh, energy is an obvious one, but I think fisheries might be a less obvious one. Energy, there's a supplier, Dana Undies in Georgia. Steve Barron is the, uh, is the person <coughs> who runs the company. The existing, off, it, it's not, it's not so much the question of can you have you know, T8 lighting as opposed to what many factories running something like T12. It's the question of getting the T8 lighting out there. And so as we even have some of our store efficiency experts go into Steve Barron's factory, I mean, in his own, you know, he claims he's saving 70%, 7-0 on his electricity right now through HVAC and through lighting. Let's say it's 30%. That's an efficiency that maybe we see 5% of, maybe we see 10, 20% of. Ultimately, the model became more efficient. So we've actually seen the opposite. When you, uh, when you look at something less obvious, like seafood, 
and going to wild-caught seafood, we said in, in that we would only sell wild-caught seafood that was MSC certified within X number of years. That time frame of three, three years was based on how do you evolve the industry, not, you know, not hurt the industry. That's where three years came from. We made sure there was funding for, for smaller suppliers, et cetera. The suppliers, the 19 fisheries that have changed over practices thus far with MSC have found actually overall operations more efficient and better. Things that they could have done, like everything we've seen five years ago, 10 years ago, we could have done five years ago, didn't have the mindset. So if anything, the question's more, how do we capture some of that gain that exists in the supply chain from the work that's going on? And honestly, if the whole pie gets 50% bigger and we capture an extra 5% and it goes to the customer, great. But there's absolute efficiency to be gained, not lost. And to underscore, there's a lot of just raw habit that goes into supply chains. And if you walk in, somebody said this the other day, I thought it was great. There's only two questions you ask with sustainability. Why and why not? So, and if you look at some of these supply chains, they're actually pretty Byzantine. There's a lot of people along the way making a lot of money off them, but adding exactly what value are you adding? And uh, so, so there's, there's, there's an element to this because what you don't want is part of these chains somewhere along the way to be really ugly or dirty or having you know, a factory or a manufacturer doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And it's very difficult for any retailer or anybody way down the chain to actually gain visibility. They're very opaque, these supply chains. And the nice thing about sustainability, because it's metrics driven and because you know, it, it gives you kind of permission to, to work together to figure things out, just like he described with, with Steve Varon, as opposed to being, Steve, we need 5% off on those undies. Right. And Steve's like, well, and then you sell on 2.5% or you know, whatever. But he doesn't change his practices. He just, you know, he cuts it the quickest way he knows how to cut it, which is, I don't want to know. It probably comes out of some, somewhere else. That you, it probably yeah. comes right back to you in two seconds. Somewhere in, else you can't see. Exactly. So, so this is an entirely different, again, mindset approach to, to supply chains. And it's about a partnership. I mean, you know, in an ideal sense, it would be in a partnership-based approach to supply chains as opposed to a PO to PO price-driven approach to supply chains. We, we, Jim and I actually were both there. We were at a dairy farm several, maybe two yeah. months ago. It was a dairy farm in Montana. And we're a retailer, and we're sitting there, and we're talking about the price of milk. And the dairy farm is having a lot of challenges because the, the price they're getting for milk has been going down for the past three years. We're looking at shelf, and we know we're we make no money on milk. Very few retailers do. Milk is basically a, a price-driven. I mean, it's, a, it's an item that people price. So there's no money at the retail level. The suppliers are not making money on it. And then we started talking about where this milk that this, this uh, dairy in Montana was being sold. And it actually wasn't going to Walmart stores, but the same thing exists in Walmart. It was being sold in Las Vegas, this milk in Montana, as if people in Montana don't drink milk. And there is so much routine practice in what is done right now that, you know, so you start, so we start, so the people in food start looking at food miles. And their first thought is, wow, we've just got to find local suppliers of the goods. But then there's just, there's infinite room to go. So all of a sudden then, we had local tomatoes in Arkansas in our stores, but they didn't sell that well because 
there are local farmers who didn't know a lot about what really, what really went into different tomato growing practices. So sitting down with those farmers, we figured out a way to actually take some best practices from the tomatoes grown in California and grown in other places that could be applied in Arkansas. All of a sudden now, instead of a nice PR thing to have a few, you know, four foot of tomatoes because they're local, the tomatoes in, that are local are actually selling better. The farmers locally are making more money. No one is paying the money to fuel that's just being wasted. The customer doesn't get that. The retailers and suppliers don't get it. And at the well, same... companies don't get it. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, so there's, needless to say, there's, there's, uh, I mean, there's just fruit everywhere. I have a question about, uh, about that. I mean, it seems like there's enough low-hanging fruit. I mean, I think it's very exciting, but there's enough low-hanging fruit to keep you busy for, I don't know, I mean, maybe a decade more? Or, um, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, what happens when the fruit is a little bit higher up on the tree? Um, and, uh, I mean, just as an example, what, you know, what would have happened if, uh, if the computers that went to Europe actually were more expensive? So uh, fruit higher up. We, we've separated just for the, uh, for the way we've, um, we've been doing this, we separate kind of the quick wins with things that we call innovation projects but are a little bit, a little bit more bold, and then game changers, where a whole industry is either created or, or looks different. There are a lot of quick wins. A quick win in coffee might be a more efficient way to distribute coffee where the transportation's less. One thing, though, is that as you start to do these quick wins, if you just do them to get the quick win, you don't have that mindset shift. Then you're just looking for, you're scrapping for quick wins, and that could be it. If you do the quick wins thinking, how do you build awareness, all of a sudden then you start getting at the innovation projects. In coffee, the people who were buying coffee took a trip down to Brazil and realized the coffee was being grown in one part of Brazil. It was being roasted in a different part of Brazil. It was being bagged in a different part of Brazil. It was then coming through two different levels and eventually getting to the store. The CEO of Transfer US, Paul Rice, came to us and said, boy, there's a much smarter way to do it. And yes, it's fair trade, but I gotta tell you, it's just a smarter way to do business. The farmers that we were worked with operated, formed a cooperative. The coffee that we have right now in Sam's Club, it's a pallet of it, it's in every Sam's Club in the, co in the country selling very well. It's $4.70-some cents a pound for fair trade organic coffee. And if any of you buy fair trade organic coffee, that is a darn good deal. The farmers are making more money, which is being reinvested into the land. And we've eliminated a number of layers of supply chain that everyone just thought had to be there. Because we can, as a retailer, work much more directly with a cooperative. And that money then in those cooperatives is going back into schools, is going back into the quality of the coffee that they're growing. That would not be a quick win. Right, I mean, that's, we consider that an innovation project. The only way you get there, though, is you start taking the quick wins and you keep learning. We have found shelf level. It comes down to what a customer will pay for if you're really doing this as part of business and you're going to do it in a big way and make it long term. Customers might pay 3 to 4% three to more for an item that they had some value associated with it, whether it was environmental or social. It's a broad generality. It's different by market, and I'm really generalizing. Customers typically in the U.S. market will not pay 10 or 20% more for a good they feel good about. They'll say they will on a survey. In fact, 80% of them will. But when they're actually faced in a mass sense in a shelf, they don't choose to with behavior. So the opportunities in trying to understand how to actually, you know, from, you know in the long term doing things a different way makes more sense. If you can figure out the path to get there and you, you can upgrade the products that you sell now because you manufacture, distribute them, move them, figure out what to do with them after in a smarter way, then you've just added more value to the customer. You don't take value away from one part and give it to another. And so that's, that's a very important factor as you bring up price.
if you're going to make the type of change we know needs to be made. My question is more yours. You're from Walmart, and Walmart is huge, and you probably have a lot of influence over your suppliers and over many of us. Um, my question is, many of us get out of here and want to do entrepreneurship, and, and it seems harder to have the influence you guys are having. And, for example, just I was in construction, and it was hard for me to, in, to, to take many of these or... or to use many, many green materials just because of cost. And I know you, you, please don't talk about green building, but just about how can I sort of influence my suppliers to give me better products, to give me more sustainable uh, products in order, but with, without busting a, a small company like the one I have? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. No, the, the first step is to <laughs> believe, I mean, this sounds a little bit funny, is to believe that you can figure it out. So it might be in the design of the building needs to be different. So if you, if, you, if, if you make the design in such a way that you can build it quicker, you could lower the overall costs and use more expensive materials. So I don't know if you know about, uh, you know, the big rage now is these prefab, but really nice prefab houses. And that's a great example. So they're made with a lot, not all of them, but some of them are made with, you know, very environmentally proactive, sensitive materials. They're cheap, and they're nice. But, you know, they're made in some someplace else, and they're shipped in big pieces, and then, you know, you put down your slab, and voila, a week later you got a house. So it, 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 it probably would require a different way of kind of thinking about your whole, the whole system of, of construction and design, marketing, the whole, the whole thing. I personally have not seen anyone that has the answer of how we actually have a sustainable society at a community at a global level. I think the best that we might know right now is the first few steps. And, you know, as we take those first few steps, we kind of come up with steps as we go that we didn't see before. The exciting thing about the last two years that I've seen is there are more places to go right now in terms of what you do after school or things to be involved in. Business, I think, looks dramatically different, at least from my viewpoint, than it did around this topic two years ago. There are more businesses, and I'm not talking about small, I'm talking about small and some very large influential businesses that have a different mindset around um, the value that, that is in this and what can be done. NGOs, I think, are maturing just as quickly into we're, we're, we're on a, a trip right now that actually happened last week to buy light bulbs. And for the first time that I know of in the company's history, one of the people, as we sat down with suppliers and talked about light bulbs, one of the people sitting next to us wasn't a Walmart associate. They worked for a large NGO. And they had been working on better light bulbs in terms of mercury and fill rates and other practices for the past 10 years. All of a sudden, you know, we, we want better light bulbs. They want better light bulbs. All of a sudden, we're sitting there together. And so there is more change that I've seen in the past two years. That, that happened, you know, that was last week. So there is, there is more and more going on, whether it's NGO, community groups, and business, that I actually think there's an opportunity to create more of that change. But, but just to underscore your, your question about being small, it's that kind of thinking, though, that will differentiate you in the market and then help to create this race to the top. Because, yes. again, I think it's an inevitability. Again, if you go on and do my little challenge to you all and go on Google and check all this out over the holidays, 
you will draw the same conclusion that it's not an if this is all going to move this way, it's just when. And it's a time horizon issue, fundamentally. So, you know, you can still make a ton of money being dirty and inefficient today in certain places, but it won't be for long. I was wondering about your strategy to communicate with customers. Um, have, you uh, have you seen in the last uh, two years already a change in the customers that come to Walmart? And also, I know that you have a pretty uh, a convinced audience here in California and in Stanford specifically, but if the idea of Walmart was actually to supply uh, people in Arkansas, I don't know how um, open they are to follow your initiative and what is the impact on their purchasing behavior. So do you have a strategy and how differentiated is it between California customers and Arkansas customers, an example? We, right now, we know it's a, we know it matters, we know it's a huge opportunity, and we know that just, you know, from, from the past, from anything, when you can, when you add more value to a product, customers, I mean, it's, it almost seems silly to say, when you, when you make a product better, more customers want it. Now, the, I, we also, as Walmart at least, we see the challenge on ourselves about how we communicate. If we, if we use the best communication that we see out there today, I think we risk really limiting that to a niche audience, not creating the type of change we're actually after. Light bulbs, though, are an, an interesting starting point with an example. Um, with, with light bulbs, you know, it's basically the high efficiency CFL light bulbs are about 5% of US penetration. In markets like Mexico, it's 65%. And you look at an easy way to create a change that the technologies there now on shelf, I mean, light bulbs, that's it. But they've existed for years, and it's still only 5% of the penetration. So there's some initial things. One thing we even did that was, and then I'll come back to your bigger question, but I mean, just as a quick change, is we, it was 5% of our shelf space, and it was typically at the bottom of the shelf. Um, several weeks ago, we made it 30% of the shelf space, and we put it at eye level. So stores are seeing, you know, the tenfold increase just because customers are more aware of an option. Now, I think with actually to answer your question, that the work that we have in front of us right now and that we're working on is if you're trying to get a customer to do something that um, you know is important but you have no way of actually connecting to where a customer is, I think you're set up for a very long and challenging time. If you can figure out, I mean, the reason that more customers are buying light bulbs is because customers are now being made aware of an option that adds value to what they're doing in their lives. And that value might be the fact they save 30 to $60 in lighting. It might be about dependence on oil. It might be about environment and greenhouse gas. And that's a, all of that's great. But it's about reaching, I mean, it's like anything else. It's starting, you know, it's making sure that the messaging, and we've got to figure this out. There is an opportunity there. It's a matter of learning and understanding where people are so that you can meet them there as opposed to just kind of using the messaging that might not work as broadly around, around the things that have been messaged for a long time and haven't moved that much yet in a mass market. They have in very niche markets moved quite a bit. I, I, just to kind of underscore this, it's about quality. And quality typically is thought of as, you know, the thing works, it looks good, et cetera. And this is kind of a quality with a capital Q. And, and again, I think, you know, I have, I have a vision, and I'll just lay it out for, for Andy here. Just the same way that, you know, Target today, if you think about the brand, it's kind of affiliated with kind of big, inexpensive, but cool designer kind of thing. 
you know, this is being podcast if you ever want to work for Target, you should be careful. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, may, oh yeah, maybe I was, I was giving away the, the state secrets here. No. I'm just making this up. I don't know if this, but, but what if five years from now, no, what if five years from now, I mean, Walmart's already known as a low-cost leader, I, I very was, efficient. I, I was talking about not offending Target if you want to go work for them. I wasn't talking about the state oh. secrets. <laughs> Fair enough. So, cool, you know, so cool, but the coolness isn't in the designer stuff, it's in the, the radical level of efficiency in the system and the cleanliness of the system. Do you have that handbag? Oh, yeah. This is, oh yeah, this is a great, great example. I mean, yeah, this is, have you seen this? I mean, this is, so I just saw it today, but there's something that, I mean, I, I don't know if people would want to just carry this around, I don't know if it would sell in a store. There's something that's deeper though about just the, that I see in it. It's deeper given what my awareness it? right now. This is from, made from, good point, this is Walmart bags, but instead of using the process right now where you actually recycle a PET or you recycle a bag, where you basically chop it up, you pulverize it, there's, it's a very energy intensive process. This is basically heating and just taking the bags as they are. And what's interesting that I see in it is I, I mean, yes, I think it's pretty cool looking. It's also cooler in a deeper way because of what I know and, and what I know is actually in here. So this to me isn't, I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't buy this bag because um, I feel compelled to buy it. I'd buy it because it adds something to my life. It's a better bag. I want it for the things that it represents. So I think it's just a, it's connecting this to a broad customer base and that, that it will happen. And I think most people, you know, they have a, a very, um, the people, the primary demographic that shops at a Walmart is not representative in this room for the most part, I would guess. So, but all things being equal, meaning if I can pay, you know, 25 cents for this, and 25 cents for this, or maybe even 26 cents for this, and this has a set of attributes which are clearly better, people will. Hands down. And so, you know, another way to think of this, the opportunity that I think, or the path that Walmart's on is the, if you will, the democratization of sustainability, because right now, it's available for all of us. You guys and gals can go, go be green. But meanwhile, 98% of the planet is not, doesn't really have that option today. And if you say planet, it's probably 99 point. Well, <laughs> that said, <laughs> probably 40, 50% of the planet has a footprint the size of a pea yeah. compared to us. True. So, Fair. So, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. What, what, one very other quick point on CFLs is as you, as you look at CFLs, some of, the, some of the existing conversation right now, people talk about creating, if we can only create the perfect PDF to educate people on CFLs, and the thing, if we're actually going to move this to address the real challenges out there, customers spend seven seconds buying a light bulb. You got seven seconds as a mom has two kids in a cart and is going by the light bulb aisle and she wants to replace the bulb. So the first thought is not, well, let me do my research on which light bulb is going to be better for my children. It's I've got a certain amount of money to spend this week, and I've got seven seconds. And we just think it's too big not to address it in that way. This relates to sort of communication as well a little bit. But uh, you've, um, I mean, you make a very compelling case. It's difficult when you say what you say, when you both say this, um, not to believe that Walmart is serious about this because... You use words like margins, value propositions, supply chains, and, and we in this room understand why that makes good business sense for Walmart. But 
outside of this room and outside of your customers, you have some loud and fierce critics and a media, and I speak as a former cynical journalist, that is cynical and amplifies those voices. How are you turning those voices around? And is it going to take a long time before they really believe? Yes, on the second. Is that fair? No, not necessarily. Maybe not. I, I, the, the, the premise, the premise in, in the work that we're doing and what we're talking about is not focused on the journalists, per se, in terms of making people like Walmart. The work is focused on doing things that make sense business and customer-wise. When you do that and when you share that story and when you actually are in a place where you're open to learning from the criticism and getting better, that potentially is the way you address that criticism. You don't address it by trying to address the points because you spend your whole life addressing criticism that way. And that's why I say, yes, it will take time. But there are, I mean, it, you know, time is, in the last two years, there are things that have happened that, you know, whenever you go into a project and you say, what would one year look like? And if, one, if two years ago, Jib and I had sat down and we said, what do two years look like? And I said, Jib, I... I can see two years from now, we're on the cover, Lee Scott's on the cover of Fortune magazine, the title is Walmart Saves the Planet, right? That would have been a joke, and then it happened. <laughs> so, so I do think that there are some people, because of the way that it's being done and the seriousness that exists within the company, time is, I mean, we, we tell people, hold us accountable for the actions, not for what we say, and then let, let time judge that. And the approach that we have is not approach of PR or philanthropy, it's a business approach. So it's not something that you do when times are good and you don't do when times are bad. And then, you know, you, you, you listen and you get better. And you listen and you get better. And the other element is letting people see. Yep. So, um, so I think, you know, there, if there was, a, I think it was last month's Outside Magazine. You guys get Outside Magazine. Anyway, it's, it's kind of odd it's an outside magazine, but this woman <laughs> who writes for a blog called grist.com, and she writes a column called Muckraker. Oh, it's, it's, it's Amanda. Amanda, yeah. yeah. And she writes this column, which is all about kind of going into like corporate spin and figuring it out and like, you know, getting her hands around it and then broadcasting it. So she went in to do just that, and she's been in there, and she keeps looking, and she keeps looking, and she keeps looking. And so she finally just decided, and you, you can read the article. So she's just like, I, I tried, but it seems to be real. And, 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 and again, just to kind of underscore, this does not exist. He's got Andy. Andy is Herculean. But it's just him and Janelle and three other people. There's no PR department that does this. There's no, you know, there is a compliance department, but they're focused literally on the laws. It's in the business. It's in the business today. Now, it still, it's a million eight hundred thousand or something, right? Employees. Yep. It's going to take a while to really permeate. There's a look of shock. <laughs> I think maybe it's on fear. I don't know. Maybe just fear, not yeah. all. <laughs> but uh, but it's it's well on the way. And, and I say this about that article for Amanda, because maybe then she'll hear this and email me, but she actually did do the Walmart cheer, which was, as she's in there, I saw her do the Walmart cheer, and I just found that amazing. So maybe she'll get a hold of this in email. One other, one other comment just is, is something that if, uh, if you want to understand more, and I don't say this about understanding more about Walmart, I say it based on understanding more about what's going on from a business perspective. 
There's a DVD that we did really internally about three months ago, and we took every one of the networks, these places in the organization, fleet, textiles, um, whatever, fisheries, that are working on things, and they spent five minutes apiece talking about what they're seeing in the world, what they're seeing in their business, and what the future looks like. And we put it together on a DVD. It actually feels fairly old to me now because it was done about three months ago. Um, it's not a public link, so if you can't search for it on walmart.com, but you can get it. Do you have that? So can you send you, it out? If it's you send okay. Sam or me an email, I can give you. It's, it's walmart.com slash sustain. So I just, I just want to make sure we, we wrap up on time and let everyone get to class. I just wanted to thank you both for coming. Due to Walmart's very stringent gift policy, we're not able to give you a, a bottle of Stanford organic wine. You could, you, could, you could give one to Jib. I could. I could. That's true. <laughs> Jib, especially being your employer. That's true. <laughs> uh, no, so normally we give a CFL and a bottle of organic wine. But I wanted to, um, to thank you both for being here today and sharing your thoughts with us. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Bruce Sharp. Our website editor was Sathyesh Chakravarthy. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.